When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Today we're listening back to a conversation from 2018 when we invited the economist Mariana Mazzucato to discuss the ideas found in her book The Value of Everything with Stella Creasy, the Labour MP in the UK. The two are looking to answer the question who creates real wealth in the world. This is the first part of a two-part episode discussion. If you'd like to hear the episode ad-free and enjoy the following part immediately, you can support our mission to foster honest debate and compelling conversations by heading to intelligencesquared.com membership or by subscribing to our channel on Apple. Part two can be heard in the next episode. Episode. Here's Stella Creasy with more. Hello, I'm Stella Creasy MP. Welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm here today with Mariana Matsukatu, who is the Professor in Economics and the Economics of Innovation and Public Value, Director and Founder of the UCL Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose, and author of The Value of Everything Making and Taking in the Global Economy. And we're here today to talk about this fantastic book. Mariana, welcome. I wonder if we could just start by you giving us a little flavour of the kind of work that you're covering in this book and how this follows on from your previous work on the entrepreneurial state. Okay, sure. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. I really look forward to this conversation. So what I tried to do in the entrepreneurial state was to get people to really question some basic assumptions they had and have about the role of the state in the economy as at best being there to fix problems, which economists called market failures, when the market messes up, the state comes in to save the day, or to invest in basic things like infrastructure, roads and bridges and housing. And that's it. You know, Then get out of the way. And so after the financial crisis, it was this interesting moment where even though it was private debt that caused the crisis, public debt was blamed for it. And then all these cuts started to happen, call it austerity or whatever. Um, and so the, the, the point of the book was sort of dual, both to really 
in terms of my area, which is innovation, to really get people to think about the role that the state has played around the world when it was organized effectively in being actually a key driver of innovation beyond just the infrastructure and the skills and the kind of things that people know the state is important for, but also at that particular moment after the financial crisis to say, and be careful, because all these cuts are actually happening, not just for the sake of it, but with particular narratives that are around, you know, how to actually foster growth. We need to drive innovation, creativity, get markets bouncing again, and this is going to require cutting. And so the point was, let's just pause a minute. What do we know about the role of the state in its collaboration with different actors and how it had to be organized but also funded in order to drive innovation-led growth in history. And so the book kind of unpicked all sorts of uh, things that people, I think, think was actually funded by the private sector, for example, all the uh, technology inside our iPhone, but also fracking, you know, it was government-funded. The technology in our iPhone, by the way, I'm thinking internet, GPS, Siri, touchscreen display, all publicly financed, but also big pharmaceutical companies, the drugs that they like to say that they funded. Most of these blockbuster drugs were actually mainly financed by public institutions, at least in the upstream really high risk phase. Um, you know, something like 75% of drugs actually trace their upstream research to public funds, and yet the prices then don't reflect that. Anyway, having made that point, a point that actually was quite successful, I went around the world and talked about it with civil servants and also heads of state, and the message really, I think, came through in this word, the entrepreneurial state, <laughs> all of a sudden became, I don't want to say a household name, but anyway – a useful uh, uh, concept that really drove lots of discussions. I felt, however, that then when policymakers actually designed the tools and the policies that they thought were really useful, it's still, you know, they were still really limited. And the reason they were limited is that the discussion then with the private sector continued to be biased because certain types of policies, and I'm thinking mainly but not only taxation policies, whether it's around capital gains tax or R&D tax credits or around the patent box policy, which we may or may not talk about later, were driven by narratives coming from different types of businesses about wealth creation, right? So, you know, in order to create value, you need to incentivize, you know, this sort of activity. And in order to do that, we need this kind of tax credit. And so I started wondering, given that actually I had also argued in the entrepreneurial <laughs> state that some of these tax credits were doing nothing but increasing profits and not actually increasing investment, the reinvestment of those profits into the real economy, I just wanted to really better understand why is it that this discourse and narrative about value and wealth creation is just so strong. So I wanted to write this new book on value sort of to start from ground zero. What do we know about that word? What is value? What have the debates been in economic history and in discourse and political uh, discussions about the term? And I was really especially struck, I must say, that after uh, Ed Miliband lost the 2015 election, day two <laughs> after that loss, there was at least three articles by the Labor Party uh, members um, – I think it was Rachel Reeves, uh, Chukamuna, and Tony Blair, all basically saying we lost because we hadn't embraced the wealth creators. And I want to say actually you lost because you haven't really taken hold <laughs> of the discussion about where does wealth creation come from. And in many ways, I think the progressives around the world have lost that because there isn't a real strong story, narrative, and understanding that we have a collective wealth creation process. Uh, value is created collectively by different types of organizations. But in order to say that and to really argue for, say, a stakeholder governance model, we need to sort of start from scratch. What is value? Mm. So, I mean, it raises a very profound question, not just in a 
a kind of question about the economic terminology and, as you say, what people understand to be wealth and what they're measuring and gross domestic all those sorts of things, but a more fundamental, profound argument about what do you value and so what do you try to in, encourage to be created and made? And I, you, you make a strong distinction in the book between people who make and take when it comes to value. I wonder if you can say a little bit about that to explain the, the distinction you make, because I think that goes to the heart of that concept of what, what do we actually value and why is that important? Yes. And I must say that the subtitle of the book doesn't say makers and takers, which it was. That was the original subtitle. And I got the publisher to change it. I say, no, no, no. We can't make it sort of an us versus them, the good guys, the bad guys. You know, the hedge funds are bad and somehow then there's the makers. Mm. It's making and taking. And I wanted the verb to be there because it, it signifies we can change things. It's not like this static thing that there is the yes. robber barons and then everyone else who's actually making things but getting you know kind of screwed in the process. <laughs> um, we can. you know, Markets are outcomes. They can be designed. Relationships can be designed in ways to actually create more inclusive types of growth and also the markets that actually serve social purposes. So the verb was very important to me. And what I mean by that, and if I can give a bit of economic history because, in fact, I think at least a third of the book – is kind of a deep dive into 300 years of history. Yes, I, I have I, to say, you've done what my um, <laughs> my economics teacher at, uni- at school, a fantastic man called Mr. Lowne, did. Mr. Lowne wanted to rehabilitate Adam Smith because he argued that people's reading of Adam Smith was always... I mean, and, and, and I would say as 16 and 17-year-olds, we weren't that into it at the time, but you've set it out in a very clear way about actually he set out a series of tools and he looked at the difference. The idea that the invisible hand was inevitable. No, it was about... Um, the ways in which people interacted in markets and the different tools you had to change them. So I think, it's, yes. if nothing else, your economic history is much more accessible to me now as a 41-year-old than it was as a 16, 17-year-old. Oh, well, is he still alive? Could you He, he is, and every in? sort of I get emails okay. from him critiquing things I'm doing. He's fantastic. a fantastic man. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I, I definitely have some high school teachers that have completely changed um, you know, what I ended up also doing. So Adam Smith, by the way, is fantastic because he actually, when he talked about the free market, he didn't mean mm. free from the state. He, he meant free from rent. Yes. Value extraction, which is at the heart of this book. Anyway, so what I try to do in that economic history bit, and do you know what's funny with Kindle, is you actually know how much of a book people have read on average. <laughs> so apparently, uh, my friend, uh, you know, Piketty, who wrote this wonderful, wonderful book on basically inequality, only about 6% <laughs> people get through because it is wow. thick. So I have, I fear that those uh, chapters that I have there on 400 years of economic history kind of have that 6% uh, mark across them. I can attest that it is worth reading. I, I didn't read on Kindle, so you can't check, but I promise you I've gone that bit. I thought it was a really, really Excellent. interesting way of putting it together. So what I try to do in that history is to show, first of all, that value has been debated, but also explicitly mm. up until recently. It was explicitly debated. I kind of draw this thing called the production boundary, how different economic theorists from the mercantilists in the 1600s, the physiocrats in the 1700s, and the classical economists who included Adam Smith in the 1800s, and then – well, anyway, up until the early 1900s, this idea of, well, who's productive, who's not? How can we steer the economy to really reward, nurture, and create more value creation activities was at the heart of economic reasoning. And this often depended on what was actually happening, right, at the time. Mm-hmm. So in the 1600s when there was this mercantilist period where they really believed that value was created through trade, then they really cared for thinking about, well, what's the right exchange rate uh, you know, what's the right terms of trade? They basically do what Donald Trump does today, who's brought <laughs> us back about 400 years, in terms of thinking, you know, should we build some walls to prevent certain things to be traded? What's the right exchange rate so we don't get a wrong NAFTA kind of deal, right? So if you think that, you know, value comes from trade, you will obsess about those terms of trade. 
Um, then in the 1700s, very kind of you know period of of agricultural. Uh, uh, mechanisms, the physiocrats, who really the first economists in terms of trying to uh, build a model of economic growth. I would say they built the first spreadsheet <laughs> called the uh, Tableau Economique. They were French mainly, um, so Canet, Turgot, etc. They believed that land, sorry, that yeah, land and farm labor were at the heart of economic value. So they were very concerned about how the products from the farm labor were actually then reinvested back into future, you know, farming. Otherwise, if they were siphoned off to fight too many wars or to buy, you know, the luxury goods of the king or whatever, that would actually, you know, create. It wasn't an invest-to-save model. <laughs> exactly. Um, later, during the Industrial Revolution, the, you know, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, and Carl. Karl Marx really focused on industrial labor. This was, again, the time of the Industrial Revolution, so it's not surprising that they focus on factories, technological change. So Adam Smith's whole book is actually this huge treatise on the division of labor, that famous pin factory example, by increasing division of labor, technological change, you increase productivity, growth, etc. And they very much focus on labor as the key um, you know, source of value. And they had different types of labor theories of value, but that's what they had. Now, what then happened, and this is the core of the book, is that these forms of debates, which I call objective theories of value, which doesn't mean good or bad, take any sort of normative bit out of this, right? But they they were tied to actual things in the real economy, farm labor, technology to do the farming, um, you know, factories, technological change, changes in the organization of production in terms of division of labor, um, the class struggle was very important. That itself was objective, right? You either did or didn't have strong negotiating power, et cetera. And so wages in Marx and also actually in the other classicals was very much dependent on the, if you want, bargaining power and class relations. What happened was that these this focus on objective conditions changed to subjective ones. And what I mean by subjective is focus on things like preferences. So everyone knows that you know current economic thought is driven by Supply and demand curves and the market, et cetera, fixing some sort of equilibrium price. But the real thing is that the the change went from a theory of value that determined how we thought exchange occurred, so theory of price, that got reversed. It became an emphasis on theories of price and prices being determined by supply and demand and what then earned a price, including wages, which are, say, the price for labor, that determined its value, right? So yeah. it's a huge revolution that most economic students don't even know happened. I come from a psychological background and a lot of the debates around IQ. And actually the IQ is something that then measures IQ in itself. It becomes a tautology that value in itself is defined by the value that you apply to something. Exactly. But as a principle that then shapes um, economic policy, I think your book shows very clearly how toxic that can be because you value what you value. Exactly. And this is why, by the way, with a straight face, blank thing, <laughs> who was the CEO of Goldman Sachs in 2009, just mm. one year after Lehman, could with a completely straight face say, Goldman Sachs workers are the most productive in the world. Well, of course they are if you base it on their salaries, mm. earn huge salaries. That's the price of their labor. So if the way we value things de- is determined by the price, then also, you know, if you earn a lot of money, you must be valuable. This is why my brother is always saying to me, you know, I'm an academic and he does construction. He's like, well, if you're so smart, <laughs> why aren't you a billionaire? <laughs> this is the kind of thing that like, brothers you are know, meant to say to their sisters. And, and, and why Christmas is always fun. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But so what the book, the core thesis of the book is because things got really messy in this mm. kind of, you know, 
uh, logic got reversed and it became quite tautological, we currently live in a system where some of the key dysfunctions, which include rising inequality, sluggish innovation, come from the fact that value extraction activities are passed for value creation. Because yeah. well, what is value? Values in the eyes of the beholder. Even wages are determined by preferences for leisure versus work. So if it's all about preferences then and the prices that then reflect that, well, who's to say whether a hedge fund is actually creating or extracting value? It's earning money. It must be valuable. So it struck me with the distinction that you were making between makers and takers. Actually, you were echoing, um, I, I have to say this is the MP for Walthamstow, a gentleman called William Morris, who was a very famous um, craftsman in, in the UK in the 1800s Victorian, but also socialist and thinker. And, and in fact, in my community, we have home of the makers as a sign because for him and the politics that he came from, the ability to make and create, they were the arts and crafts movement in the UK, but it was an incredibly political um, movement. Being able to be in the hands of your own production, to be able to make and create and design and own your own value creation goods was a very powerful thing for him and his movement and stood against the kind of capitalist masses that you didn't have the capacity to create. And that idea has been lost. Now, that's not to say that creation is all about whether you can do crafting. I have to say you don't want to see me try and do needlepoint. It's more that I think what you've done so powerfully in this book is show how in blurring the lines between when something is generating value and something has value, we come to these conclusions that value in itself is all that matters. And actually unpicking that helps us understand what we're creating and why. So for me as a politician moving away from just narrow numbers to, well, is there money involved, to actually saying, what's this leading to? What's the outcome? I think it's a very powerful way of thinking about how did we get to where we got to in 2008-9 with the financial crisis and and then the political response to that that just said this is about money rather than actually. So austerity becomes a way of dealing with the fact that you don't have enough money or you see you don't have enough money rather than asking what is creating wealth here what is creating productivity and bones and so what do we need to do more of in order to deal with the impact of the renting behavior exactly i mean you couldn't have put it better and <laughs> i i love the fact that you began with morris because it's it exactly brings us back to thinking about, you know, making and taking and craft. And is it really just about sort of pointing and putting a, a torch and looking at parts of the economy that are kind of working and others that aren't? And I think coming back to the why it's making and taking and not makers versus takers, it's that when I say we can change things, it's precisely that, which is, for example, everyone talks about innovation mm. or inclusive growth or sustainable growth. Well, how do you get that? You surely need, for example, long-term finance, right? Innovation is extremely risky. Most attempts fail. And by the way, you know, again, most of the big innovations have also come out of public sector being willing to take risks. You know, for every internet, there were some projects that yeah. failed even with so it's, it's, both public it's and private. It's probably worth unpicking. The, the internet is a great example of it, isn't it? Because Tim Berners-Lee yeah. was supported by, actually it was the American military, wasn't it, in the development yeah. of the internet. But obviously the commercial social innovation that has come out of that has, has, I mean, that's by the very nature of it. But I think a lot of people forget that part of the story. Exactly. But so I think there's two bits and I think you've alluded to both. So I'll come back to the, mm. um, to this issue in some ways also about contracts in a minute. But, you know, how do you actually, if you need long-term finance, forget whether it's public or private, you know, if you want to finance innovation, if a venture capitalist is interested <laughs> in financing innovation, you know, there's a problem then if the VC industry, the venture capital in industry is so exit driven. They want to exit in three years and they want to exit through an IPO or a buyout. 
that might be fine for a gadget, get you from gadget A, gadget B. It doesn't get you the biotech revolution. It doesn't get you the nanotech revolution. It doesn't get you internet or the green revolution. So you need long-term finance. So instead of saying, oh, finance are just a bunch of takers. Instead, you have these craft guys who are makers. Why don't we really think through how to transform and alter the way that finance is currently operating and make it more long-termist? For example, the need for public banks. I, I, I was one of the commissioners for the report that just came out this week by IPPR, by the Commission of Economic Justice. Um, the Archbishop of Canterbury was also a commissioner. He's done some great uh, talks this week about that. You know, one of the things we argued for in that report was, in fact, we need to rethink the role of you know patient finance also and mainly in some ways in the public sector. But my point is always be careful. Just because you have public money and it's going to be long term itself isn't enough. What is it you're financing? Who decides? Is it some dictator or one pet project of a politician? That, you know, if we really believe in value created collectively, we should also be using the democratic process and different ways to engage citizens in really having a debate about, for example, what would a green transition in this country look like? Is it just about getting solar panels up on the roofs or might it actually require green direction for the entire economy? And so you would use different types of government instruments, whether it's a public bank or grants or prizes, to really crowd in and and source through different parts of the economy solutions that actually are focused on a problem, which, yes, may be set, if you want, top down. But the way we even frame that problem has to be an outcome of, if you want, citizens' engagement. Mm-hmm. And so what you then have is not just you know, <laughs> government spending a lot of money and you know, co-creating mm-hmm. that space, but really using the different instruments it has, both to drive in bottom-up solutions, but also to listen. What are citizens actually really worried about? I mean, one of the reasons I think we have all this populism today all around the world, is citizens have sort of started to lack real faith that the political process itself is there to to handle and to deal with their concerns. And so it's not about, you know, thinking that we're all in, you know, whether it's academics or politicians, they know somehow better and we're going to do this in the healthcare industry and this in education. But how do you really, I want to say, apply the art of listening and empathy <laughs> in terms of sourcing so, in? Yeah, I mean, so I, I, I come from the cooperative as well as the, the, the labour tradition. And a lot of the questions that you are raising are questions that you can also put to the state as well as to industry. And one of the, the things I think is very powerful about the argument that you make, and I'd be love to hear your thoughts about it, is people make this, I think, artificial distinction between public and private, when actually the reality is the interconnection and interplay between the two um, is what creates our economy, our society, our culture. At that very point, politics is supposed to be the point that, that that is the bridge and the navigator between them and how you influence both. And actually, our politics at the moment disempowers people because it's a structure that was built hundreds of years ago. Um, I'm from a political party. People boast about how our, our structures echo structures from 120 years ago like that's a good thing. Um, but actually, that's a, a function of a deeper problem in our, our society where we, we don't look at the public as a source of knowledge wealth creation value in of themselves so we kind of we expect 650 people in a place that looks a bit like hogwarts gone wrong to make all the decisions based on economic theory or traditional political theory and then present them to the public as this is the answer when they're going there's a whole different question out there that we need to be answering um you know i i have jumpers older than the internet it's completely changed yeah. the world before them and i think that's why things like um conspiracy theories are so popular yeah. because actually that tells you that there is a plan. If the reality is there's a bunch of people going, my God, there's all these different issues we might want to deal with. We don't really have the tools for them. That's quite complicated. If it's a bunch of us all sitting around going, we don't know quite what to do, 
that's very scary. So yep. better a conspiracy theory that there's actually an, an evil master plan behind it and global inequality than, than mm. the reality that you've right. got 18th and 19th century political systems trying to deal with 21st century problems and challenges. Right. So first of all, you must have very good uh, anti-moth things if you still have your jumpers. All my jumpers, <laughs> all my jumpers from back then have holes in them, so I'm very impressed. Um, so the reason I founded um, this this institute, which is actually mm. a department at UCL called Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose, is precisely to tackle these questions. So mm. after this, I want to I want to <laughs> you know convince you to come and work with us. Um, and and the idea there is that all these kind of grand challenges that people talk about, you know, inclusive growth, sustainable mm. growth, or think of the SDGs, you know, seventeen of them. Inc- incredibly ambitious. There is no way that any one type of actor, whether it's the state, the private sector, the nonprofit institutions will be able to tackle alone. They're going to have to go at it together. However, we have business schools around the world that teach you know, management tools, how to think out of the box, how to avoid becoming too bureaucratic and inertial to the top managers, right? Just think of the names of the courses they take, strategic management, decision sciences, organizational behavior. <laughs> there are books that are called, you know, uh, renewing the, the the large kind of organization because, you know, large private organizations risk getting too bureaucratic. So because they create value, yeah. you say, oh, be careful. You're going to have to, you know, get a multidivisional kind of firm and bring in some level of energy and excitement and think out of the box. But because because we've dismissed the public side as at best facilitating, enabling, de-risking these wonderful risk takers, then that same level of really important internal granular thinking of how to make sure that we remain flexible, adapted, learn, welcome trial and error, because you can't ride a bike without trial and error, right? So how are you going to learn inside a public institution? That hasn't really happened. And so we can't have a functional partnership yeah. if only one <laughs> is, is actually quite dynamic. And you know, having said that, there's plenty of non-dynamic private companies. But the goal, I think, and this is really also in the book, which is if we want to create value, if we want that value also to be addressing things that matter, this is going to have to happen in partnership. And currently what we have is a pretty depressed public sector, if I can be frank. I often walk into meetings as an economist and I feel like I walk out as a life coach. I say this all, all the time because it's true. You know, it, There's really a hemorrhaging also of talent from different types of state organizations around the world because you're told – you're, you know, at best a fixer, at worst an impediment to growth. Well, why am I going to sit here and earn a lower salary if, you know, if people think I'm an impediment if they don't even give me the remit mm. to be bold? Um, and so, you know, that then brings us to the question that just as with the private sector, what actually happens within the public sector really matters. How do we structure it? How do we welcome that experimentation? And on top of that, how should they relate to each other? So I think that one of the big problems in the UK, but not only, has been not so much that certain things have been privatized, say rail, but how? Mm. With really, really weak conditions in place. If Richard Branson does, for example, want to enter the transport industry around rail or if companies want to enter water or health, it should be under strict conditions. So what is actually what we're trying a society to build? What kind of healthcare system? Okay, then we can outsource bits of it in order to achieve that goal. This, by the way, is what the military does. The military is not naive. And I'm not saying let's copy the military. (laughs) We know there's huge problems with that. But when we care about things like fight the war – Believe me, we don't get naive about just letting different actors come in and do whatever they want and charge whatever price, which is what happens in health. Yeah. Believe it or not, in the U.S., we have over $32 billion a year spent by the U.S. government on research to produce drugs. And then the prices are, are set by the pharmaceutical companies. Then the welfare state has to come in 
to you know pay for to pay for their address for people it, who can't bring it the, down. Yeah. So I mean, the taxpayer is paying twice, and yeah. often even even after that whole negotiation happens, it's still in this country it's through nice right, which tries to bring down the yeah. prices. It's just a very inefficient system. So we should have, I believe, what I call mission oriented, not just policies but also structures where that kind of upstream investments by different actors also gets reflected downstream in terms of the access to those innovations and issues around access and equity should actually be part of how we define innovation. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Daniel Ben-Coran with editing from Tom Hall. If you'd like to enjoy the second part of this discussion now, then head over to intelligencesquared.com to sign up and become a member. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of the back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.